Acts chapter 2. As we continue our series through this great historical book. Original documents that set forth the basic tenets, objectives, or rules of an institution or organization often become outdated. There comes a time when such documents must be revised or even scrapped. But there are other instances when founding documents prove so enlightened that they stand the test of time, continuing to serve the institution or organization as a standard for the long haul. Our nation's founding documents, such as the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, serve as examples of this sort of founding document with concepts, enduring concepts, such as all men are created equal, and life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as a fundamental human right. These documents have stood the test of time, and they continue to inform and to steer our society 225 years later. You could say it in a word. These who wrote these original documents nailed it. They said it well, and we continue to talk through and debate what it means and how it is to be applied, but there are these central documents. As we come to Acts chapter 2 in our journey through this book, Peter issues no Christian constitution. This is not a mission statement or a code of conduct as such, but rather he issues here the inaugural witness of Jesus' followers to Jesus' death, resurrection, and lordship. And his message stands, Acts 2, this message stands to this day as a classic expression of the very essence of genuine Christianity. We don't improve on this text. There are some churches that have altered it radically. But we don't strive to do that. There is no need to do that. What is here stands as a demonstration of genuine Christian faith. If you want to strike at the heart of America, you will do well to know our nation's founding documents. And if you want to strike at the heart of the Christian faith, you need to know Acts chapter 2 well. The message of Peter here at Pentecost to those who are standing by and hearing And as we come to this great text, this great sermon, which we have horribly divided and set aside here for a couple of weeks, but we come back to it today, and I ask this question in light of this message. What is the essence of Christianity? What is the essence of Christianity? Young people, you who are growing up and will someday perhaps leave this assembly and go on to stand on your own and believe what you believe, do you know what the essence of Christianity is? Can you articulate it? Can you defend it? Can you understand it? For those of you who are fathers and leading your homes, are you teaching your children the essence of Christianity? Mothers who teach your children and give an example to them, do you know what Christianity is? All of us who live as Christians in a fallen world and are seeking to influence those around us and those who come behind us, do we know what it truly is? Do we have a grasp of its spirit, of its heart, of its essence? As we study this profound speech, we cannot miss 
that Christianity is not, at its core, a code of conduct or a way of life. I cannot read hearts, I cannot know your soul, but I would suspect with the number of people in this assembly that there are some of you who think that's what it is. It's a code of conduct. It's a lifestyle. It certainly leads to that. It involves that in the end, that is a result of it, but that is not the essence of Christianity. What we read here from Peter is not a list of rules of conduct. It is not, in light of this message, a social system providing people with structures by which to mark seasons. Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving. It's not a social structure by which to celebrate crucial human turning points. Birth, marriage, death. As we look at this message, this critical first message of the witnesses of Christ, we also learn here that Christianity is not merely a plan of salvation. And again, I would suspect there could well be some here who really believe that. If it came down to it and you had to define the essence of Christianity, you believe it is a plan of salvation. Now, it certainly is that. But is that its essence? Is that what it is at its heart? In this inaugural message of the infant church, we see that the essence of Christianity is the person and the work of Jesus of Nazareth. Relating personally to who Jesus is and to what Jesus has done in time in salvation history is of fundamental importance. It is at the heart. It is the essence of what Christianity is. This faith is a person and our relationship to Him. Now let's remember in context Beginning at verse 1 of this great chapter, the ascended Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit. You may want to just skim through in these first 13 verses. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon these witnesses who speak to the glory of God in languages that they have never learned. They've never understood before this moment. But the Spirit of God by the ascended Jesus has been poured out upon them and they to demonstrate the speak languages, bringing glory to God, languages that they have never studied. The response to this is obvious bewilderment, amazement. There's others who mock and say, there's only one answer for this. These guys have had too much to drink. They're a bit tippy. It doesn't follow at all, and Peter offers a defense beginning at verse 14, saying to them, no, these people are not drunk Verse 15, it's only the third hour of the day. What is this? What this is is what Joel prophesied. Joel chapter 2, Joel said this day was coming. You know this. Think of your Bible. Think of the revelation of God that He's revealed to you. You knew this day was coming. The Spirit of God was prophesied to be poured out upon God's people. All kinds of people. It's happened. Joel 2 has been fulfilled. And Peter demonstrates that at verse 14 and following, down through verse 21. These people aren't insane. They're not drunk. This is what has been prophesied for thousands of years to come, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, at this place, 
Peter turns to his listeners and drives at the very essence of the Christian faith as he witnesses to them of Jesus. We need to listen carefully and to gain a sense of this essence. We'll take our time, particularly through these first three verses. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Let's stop there for a moment and think carefully of what he said in this introductory word. Having given this defense, they're not drunk, they're not insane. This is Joel 2 being fulfilled on some level. Now I want you to understand here is the heart of the matter. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was not a myth. He was not an apparition. Jesus was a genuine man whose history is rooted in time and space. It's about a man. He is a man, not like any other man, but one who is attested to you. He is attested, verse 22, by mighty works, wonders, and signs. That is, this man performed miracles. There was a suspension of the time-space-mass continuum, this man had power over creation, and he demonstrated this. These were signs. Miracles of Jesus weren't done simply to perform. They weren't meant to draw a crowd so that people would come like some magician doing an act to get another message across. These were signs that God gave to Jesus to attest that Jesus had the authority of God. And he had the power of God. And he did all this not in a corner, not simply before his followers, but in your midst as you yourselves know. Peter's hearers knew that Jesus worked miracles. And there was never any debate about that in the text of the New Testament. There are many people who doubted many things about Jesus, but nobody ever doubted this, that he performed miracles. We have, even to this day, the record of the Jewish historian Josephus, who spoke of Jesus as a miracle worker, as a worker of signs, a man with mighty power. Whether or not Josephus embraced Christ as Savior, there's no indication that he did necessarily But he did know Jesus was a worker of miracles. Jesus' enemies, we find from the early text of church history, called Jesus a magician. Why are they calling him a magician? He's a worker of miracles. There were these signs. And you know this, says Peter. You know that this man did these things in God's opinion. And that's all that matters. He's not a magician. He's not working with the powers of darkness. What matters is God's opinion, and God's opinion is this. These miracles attest that He is God's man. This Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, anybody can claim to be Messiah. But not everyone can walk on water and still the sea and raise a person who's dead and heal the blind from birth. Not everyone can do that. Only one that has God's unique approval. That's this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And you know this. You know he did these things, Peter says. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
The death of Jesus is the center of this Christian message. Jesus' crucifixion, we find here, was no accident. It took place according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, some would say that the foreknowledge of God is simply God seeing what people would do. So God knew ahead of time what would take place and what would happen. Now, that's certainly true. But it fails to really give weight to God's plan. It says here in verse 23, according to the definite plan of God. God's plan refers to the decree or counsel of God, which logically precedes his foreknowledge. Now, with God, there is no time. He lives in an eternal, timeless dimension. But logically speaking, there was a plan of God which he then foreknew and foresaw taking place. He knows what he plans, and God plans to dec- or decrees to deliver Jesus over to those who will murder him. Although Jesus' death was the ultimate atrocity, the most wicked of all human injustices. You hear this. The most wicked of all human injustices. But Peter says God planned the crucifixion. According to the definite plan of God. Now some call this cosmic child abuse. But we know, of course, that God does this because of his love for the world. It's not abuse, it's sacrifice, and it is indeed sacrifice. But it is for his, out of his love for the world that he gives his son. But do we ask the question again, does God then kill his son? Notice what it says next in verse 23. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It is God's plan. He gives over Jesus to these individuals. They kill Him. God holds these wicked men fully responsible for their actions. And it's hard. It kind of blows the mind away to grasp these things, but we must come to terms with these ideas. There is full human freedom and responsibility and there is divine sovereignty working together here. The word that we often use is compatibilism. It is compatible to have an absolute sovereign God who plans all things and for people to act humanly, freely, though obviously not with absolute human freedom. In bondage to their own sinful hearts, and this is what God knows, He knows the bondage of the sinful heart, given the right circumstances, they were compelled by their evil hearts to crucify Jesus. They are then fully responsible for choosing what they wanted to do. And so orchestrating circumstances, God gave Jesus over to their intention, knowing fully what would happen. Because he loved the world. But the main point, that's a little rabbit trail, coming back on it, here's a simple point. You killed him. You killed him. The very one that God has been working here in Israel to show has his approval. This one who has been working among you with signs and wonders, these mighty deeds. This very one you put on a cross and said, we don't want him. 
Verse 24, but God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. They hurled Jesus into the realm of death, but the bitter gall of death simply could not keep its icy grip on Jesus. There is here death and God in a tug of war over Jesus, and death doesn't have a prayer. As the author of life, Jesus shatters the bonds of death, bursting forth into resurrection life. This is at the heart of the message of Christianity. This is what it's about. This man, with God's approval, dying according to the plan of God and rising from the dead. Now at this place, the sermon transitions and Peter moves off into a defense of Jesus' resurrection and exaltation And he argues this point biblically. Verses 25 through 36 will deal with this idea. Peter defends Jesus' resurrection and exaltation from the Hebrew Scriptures. Verse 25, he says, for. Notice that word, for. This is what has happened in Jesus' experience. For, it is based upon this idea. David says concerning him. He quotes now Psalm 16. We're just reading Psalm 16 here. I saw the Lord, writes David, always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, that is, to the realm of death. You won't give me over to death. You won't hand me to this enemy. Or let your Holy One see corruption. David writing, You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now the essence of this section is verse 27. This is why he's drawing from Psalm 16. You will not abandon my soul to death. You will not let me see corruption. Now this passage caused the rabbis of Israel great trouble. And Peter expresses that trouble because he says in verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us this day. Just look right over there. You know where it is. That's his tomb. It's been robbed two times by this place, but the only thing anybody's taken is wealth. Nobody has yet disturbed the ashes of David He has seen corruption, and you know where his tomb is. Now, how can this apply to David? You will not allow me to see corruption. Maybe on some level David speaks of himself, but you know that ultimately this is not fulfilled in him. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Who is this Holy One of whom David speaks? Now, we can't precisely know what was in David's mind. But he did often look forward to a son who would reign in his stead forever and thus could never be abandoned to corruption. Now this we must understand about biblical teaching and the Old Testament prophecies. David has received from God the prophecy that one of his sons would reign on his throne forever. Now there's only two ways that's going to work. You have one son after another son after another son after another son throughout all eternity. David, perhaps reasoning through this, says that's not the option. 
The only other option is for fulfillment to come, there will be a last days to which the prophets point forward, which means somewhere there will be one Son who reigns forever. And if there is one Son that comes from my body, He's not some kind of angel, He's not some kind of apparition, He's a Son that comes from my body, If he is to reign forever, it means that he will not be delivered over to the corruption of death. And so he speaks prophetically, saying, this Holy One will not see corruption. David expresses the near fulfillment that God will protect him from untimely death, but David refers past himself to the ultimate king who will come from his body. It reads very much like Genesis 3.15. As he moves past himself to something beyond himself to this one who will crush the serpent's head. And Peter continues to argue this point rationally as he says the tomb is right over there. So it's not David who escapes corruption. Ultimately, verse 30, being therefore a prophet. That is, David is seeing something beyond himself and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. The Messiah will rise again. That he was not abandoned to Hades, not given over to death, nor did his flesh see corruption. He's reading the Old Testament text, and he's seeing this here, that there is some sense that this is what David meant. Referring back to 2 Samuel 7, and isn't it interesting, Luke in his previous gospel account says in 132, the Lord God will give him, Jesus, the throne of his father David. Messiah will be the one who rules on David's throne and will fulfill God's promise that a son of David will rule forever. This one will not see corruption, David says. So he understands that God's promise to sit one of his descendants on his throne means this Messiah will not see corruption, but will rise from the dead. Verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah, the Christ, that he was not abandoned to death, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, says Peter, God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. Think 1.8 here. You will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit's come. The Holy Spirit is coming. He says we are witnesses of this fact. He has risen from the dead. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. How do we know Jesus has risen from the dead? How do we know that he's ascended into heaven? He is the one who's pouring out his Spirit. Now, Joel told you about this. Centuries before, the Spirit is going to be poured out, and the evidence that the Spirit is being poured out are these tongues, and Jesus is the one who will baptize in the Spirit. He has ascended, and these tongues, this baptism of the Spirit, is an evidence that He is seated at God's right hand right now. He is exalted, and He has poured out His Spirit. Verse 34 For, there you see it again, for David, based on the text of Scripture, now he's going to Psalm 110. For David did not ascend into the heavens. 
Did David defeat corruption? Look at the tomb over there. Did David ascend into the heavens? Look at the tomb over there. But he said in Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now once again, the rabbis of Israel tore their hair out with this. And you remember Jesus really messing with them on that and saying, How does David call his son his Lord? The king doesn't call anybody Lord. Not until he's bowing before another Lord that's about to lop his head off or put him in chains forever. You don't call anybody Lord. You're the Lord. But David, thinking of this promised Messiah, this son calls him Lord even though he's his son. How is this possible, Jesus said to the Pharisee. They didn't know. Here's this fisherman standing up and saying, I know. Psalm 110 is looking forward to Messiah. And is saying that this son of David will be seated at the right hand of God. Now in one sense, this doesn't apply to David at all. Because his ashes are right over there. But it does apply to Jesus. What's the proof? He's not dead. He's not in the tomb. You can't point to his tomb. What you can point to is his activity. He just poured out the Spirit on these individuals and you saw it. He lives. And this is what was prophesied. The Lord will sit at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is seated there. He is reigning now. Verse 36, what is the conclusion? Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. He is Christ, Messiah. He is Lord, sovereign, ruling, reigning King of heaven. This Jesus whom you crucified. That's a horrifying phrase. If we come to grips with the gravity of the matter, this Jesus you crucified, He is the Sovereign Lord, He is the Messiah sent from God, who has all along been prophesied, and you nailed Him to a cross. What we learn from this is Jesus is God's man. Jesus is God's man. And Jesus is the central element of Christian faith. Now think of Islam by contrast. For instance, Allah could have chosen another prophet than Muhammad. Muhammad is highly revered as one prophet among other prophets, but had Allah chosen, I think any Muslim would give you this, that Allah could have chosen another prophet. Could the God of Scriptures, the creator and sustainer of the world, Could the true and living God have chosen another man besides Jesus? Answer, no. Not through this prophetic preparation. Jesus alone is God's man, and it's about Jesus. You see, it's not just a plan of salvation. In Jesus, there is a plan of salvation, but it's about this man He is God. He is Messiah. We must come to terms with Him. Code of ethics? Yes. Plan of salvation? Yes. But you've got to meet this Jesus eye to eye. You have to know Him. Now this Jesus, who is God's man, this Jesus, who rules from heaven's throne, this Jesus you killed. 
At verse 37, we pick up on the response to this powerful sermon. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? I have no doubt that their skin crawled and their heart was pierced with an ache. We killed God's Messiah. He's been preparing us for this one in the text of Scripture. And He worked these miracles to show who He is, and we put Him on a cross. What are we going to do? What does Peter say? Verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We could add, just like we have here. They are to repent. That means they are to turn from the sin of rejecting Jesus, to turn from wickedness and to embrace Jesus They are to be baptized. This would be an outward demonstration of the inner transformation that results when one turns from sin to submission to the Lordship of Jesus. And there will be two results. One, your sins will be forgiven. God is merciful. That is a word of great mercy. God will forgive you of your sins. If you turn from them, turn from this rejection of Christ, He will forgive you and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting here. He doesn't say, your sins will be forgiven, and then I want you to go and pray and wait until the Spirit of God baptizes you. Or I want you to go through these schemes in order to seek the Spirit baptism. Hopefully it will come somewhere down the line. What initiates Spirit baptism for those who respond to Jesus crucified and risen is repentance. When you turn from your sin, when you embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior, your sins are forgiven and you are baptized in the Spirit. This is the basic pattern. Now, in the book of Acts, there's some messing around with that pattern. God is doing some unique things here with the baptism of the Spirit. But this is the baseline. Repent and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say you might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It says you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, as we continue on, verse 39, the promise is for you, it is for your children, and it is for all who are far off. That would include rebellious Jews in some context, but primarily Gentiles, Ephesians 2. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. If God calls you, you'll come, you'll respond. This is what you must do, is repent. It is a message for all people and the joyful experience of everyone whom the Lord calls. Now, this is not all that Peter will say in this message. We just have the essence of it. But Luke gives the gist of that message as is indicated in verse 40. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. He bore witness Chapter 1, verse 8. He exhorted. The Greek word means he's urging them. He is encouraging them. He's pleading with them. He's appealing to them. Now, some people take that phrase that you read there at the end of verse 39, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, 
and say, well, we don't know who the Lord is going to call to himself, therefore we, we really can't urge anyone to embrace the gospel because we don't know if it has anything to do with them. Well, Peter wasn't infected with that thinking, was he? He's urging, he is pleading, he is challenging them. You must turn. You must repent. You must choose Christ. Now, there's, it's both and again. There's the choice that God makes. There's the choice that the human makes. And Peter urges them to turn. They must respond. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. That obviously doesn't mean you save yourself, but it means turn, repent, and embrace Christ. You are lost. You must embrace Jesus as your Savior. You must turn from your sin. You must receive Him today. Your ultimate sin is that you've rejected Christ. So, verse 41, those who received His word were baptized. That's an amazing statement. They've crucified Christ and now they're identifying with Him in baptism. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. They received the word followed by the visible symbol of that reception, namely immersion in water, and they were added, which implies that they were identified with the new community of Jesus' followers. Those who responded moved out of the circle of those who rejected Jesus, and they moved into the circle of those who embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior. They were added to the people of Messiah. It is a powerful sermon followed by a powerful response. 3,000 added to the followers of Jesus, and the numbers will continue to grow because Jesus is who he says that he is. Now, as we stop and just think for just a few more moments, one thing that I think we see here is that Peter had been with Jesus. And that's pretty clear. And how is that clear? How is it clear that Peter has been with Jesus? It's his use of the Scriptures. How he handles those Scriptures and how he uses them to address people who are in rejection of Christ. Think of it. This is Peter. This man's a fisherman. He's from Galilee. But after just a few short years with Jesus, he has a profound grasp of biblical prophecy and how to wield the text of Scripture to bear witness to Jesus. Now, I know he's got some advantages. He went to the seminary of Jesus. But Jesus taught him how to use the text of Scripture, and this unlearned Galilean fisherman was wielding the text and answering questions that the rabbis couldn't answer. He'd been with Jesus. He'd been studying the text of the Old Testament. He knew who Jesus was. He doesn't say it all here, and as we go into the New Testament, there will be many details filled in and much more work done on who Jesus is. But we find here a man who knows Jesus, who knows his scriptures, who knows how to answer those who object, and knows how to bring people to Christ as Savior. Now hear me. I ask you the question, are you growing increasingly capable of explaining and defending the deity, the reign, and the saving power of Jesus Christ? Are you capable of defending that truth from the texts of Scripture, Old Testament as well as New Testament? 
That's what's going on in Peter's life. He is growing in his capacities to handle the scriptures. You know, one reason why I don't think that marks our lives as it should is because we're not reading the Bible evangelistically. Peter was being prepared by Jesus to be a witness. That is, Peter is reading the scriptures for growth, to commune with God, to be devoted to God in his studies of the scriptures, but he is also reading the Bible in order to be a witness. That makes a world of difference. If all you ever do is read the Bible to try to get out of it something for your own soul, can I offer that it's very likely that you are reading the Bible in a self-centered manner. We need to be reading the Bible in order to proclaim that message to other people. And when we proclaim that message to other people, we learn it in a unique way. Peter has come to read it evangelistically. He has come to be able to handle it as to say, this is who Jesus is. And I would encourage all of you to be thinking, how is it that I can be talking with unbelievers about Jesus Christ? Ideally, to sit down with open Bible and to study it, but to be able to handle the text of Scripture. You say, who are those people? How do I talk to them? How do I get into a conversation, a Bible study with somebody? I go down the grocery aisle and ask people if they want a Bible. I don't know how to do it. Where we start is with the study, perhaps. We need to be nurturing contacts and nurturing relationships, but one place we start is with the study of Scripture. If God put someone in your place who needed to know Christ as Savior, could you deliver the goods? Do you know enough about your Bible to be able to lead somebody to Jesus Christ? If not, there's your project. I don't want to discourage anybody here, but honestly, it can be dangerous to just know a couple verses here and there and not really know who Jesus is. We can point them to a Christianity which is based on moral code. We can point them to a Christianity which is just a plan of salvation. We need to know how to read the Bible to say, I want you to meet my Savior. I want you to know who he is. And I want to introduce you to him and show you from the text of Scripture that this is no man that the church just made up and turned into some God because they missed him so much. This is a man who through the ages God has prepared the earth to receive. Let me show you who Jesus is. Peter has been with Jesus. And he's studying the scriptures that he might introduce Jesus to other people. Secondly, Peter's gospel presentation we find here is calibrated to convict his hearers of sin and to point them to Jesus, not to make them feel comfortable. There is written text, it's hard to believe sometimes, but there's written text in this land where churches are teaching us that what we must do is make everybody comfortable. And if the message we proclaim makes everyone comfortable, they're okay with it, they will ease on into the kingdom and become Christians 
almost by saturation. It just sort of happens somewhere along the line because they're in a place that's talking about the things they want to hear about. I don't think anybody in Peter's audience wanted to hear that they had crucified Christ. It's not a message they were looking forward to that day. Now, we have to be extremely cautious here. What we wield is good news. We don't come to offend and to harm people and tear them down because they're so dumb that they don't see the gospel. Of course they don't see it. They're blind. With pleading, with grace, with mercy, we extend good news to them. But think of it. if, If you discovered a tree and you took oil from the leaf of that tree and it cured cancer, you're not going to run around trying to offend people with the message. You dumb idiot, you've never used this oil before, what's wrong with you? Why can't you see this? They'd be offended at you. You would want to offer good news. And so it is here. We have the healing balm of the soul. We offer it as good news. But having said that, Peter demonstrates to us here that we must come to the place where we convict of sin. Now, the Spirit alone can do that, but we need to use our words to bring it to that. This is essential in witness. At its very heart, this conviction must center upon the sinner's rejection of Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, there's a lot of sins that every sinner has committed. But we must get to the heart of the rebellion against God. And that is a rejection of Christ as Lord. We need to bring it to that. You have rejected Messiah. That's what Peter does. And I think it's a good pattern for us to follow. I don't think it's recorded here as a pattern for witnessing as such. It's at the heart of the message. You have rejected Christ. The ultimate issue is not to convince sinners that they've disobeyed God, though they have, and that's right to do. But the ultimate issue is that this disobedience is a rejection of Jesus Christ. And as Lenski reminds us, I love this phrase, he said, no sinner does God a favor by accepting Christ. I want to be gracious with the words that I use in witness, but I do not want to send the message that you will do the church and you will do Jesus a favor by accepting Him as your Savior. The only favors are the mercies of God. Jesus is the sovereign Lord, and those who reject this truth are rejecting the only means of salvation. They must come to Christ. And let's end on that point. Thirdly, Christianity is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. All of you, young people, children, the youngest among us, go home with this truth. The heart of Christianity is Jesus. It's about a person, and it's about your relationship to that person. It is not a list of rules. It's not a code, though it may lead to that at places. It's not a plan of salvation, though it includes that. It's certainly not a social structure that just gives us guidance to how to pass and celebrate holidays and to welcome people into life and to bury them in death. It's about a person. It's centered in what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. This is a radically distinct perspective. We live in such a self-oriented culture. 
as the followers of Jesus, we will be living saying that what Jesus did in his life is more important to me than what I do in my own. The historical Christ, crucified, risen, ascended, and coming again is what matters. My whole identity is caught up, bound up, united with this one. I have died with Him. I have risen with Him. I have left aside my self-identity and I have come to know myself in relationship with Jesus Christ such that He permeates all that I do and think and all that I am and will throughout all eternity. This is who Jesus is right now. The reigning one. Perhaps you've looked at Christianity the wrong way. Perhaps you have. You know, honestly, really, as you look at it, you see it as a list of rules. Perhaps you look at it as it's the family into which you're born. Or it's just a sort of a way of life, or it's a plan of salvation, and I've memorized the plan of salvation. I know what it is. And perhaps going down those routes, you've missed this essence. It's Jesus. It's being united with Him in His death and resurrection. It is coming to discern who He is and submitting to Him as your Lord and Savior. Have you done that? Have you come to that place? I urge you. I appeal to you. I exhort you. Turn to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Because it can be said of Him, you killed Him. I killed Him. Because of our sins, He died. Don't go into eternity meeting the Christ that you put on the cross. But come in repentance, turning from your sin and realizing that salvation is in this one alone. And to those of us who know Him as Savior, there's a lot of things we believe as a church. There's things that are dear to us and we hold tenaciously to them. But at the end of the day, let's never forget, it's about Jesus Christ. He is our creed. He is the center of our faith. It's about a person and knowing that person through His Spirit. May we rejoice in that and always lift Christ high. Exalt Him and honor Him to the best of our ability by His grace alone. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we praise You for our Savior, Jesus Christ. We give You praise and we give You thanks for what He has done. He is our prophet, priest, and king. He is our reigning Savior. And we pause in awe to thank You. As we now sing and respond, I pray that You'll lift up our hearts and that our songs would ascend as sweet incense and bring pleasure to Your heart. Through Christ I pray. Amen.